0: Let me go back to this, because I thought that this was really important, what you said, and maybe we can even, oops, wrong way, maybe we can talk about this a little bit more. You know, this this last little paragraph that you, you, you when you were talking about Nicodemus, I don't know, it was kind of a, yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here, in just kind of normal human modes of thinking, does not compute. We are asking for something supernatural to happen, and we've experienced that with, with this rebirth and with this regeneration that we've all experienced. Um, and that really opens up our eyes to see Jesus' kingdom, to see the kingdom of God. Um, so we continue to ask for that and continue to seek that. Let me talk a little bit about the kingdom this morning. Um, I I've, I've was looking through some past notes, and I've, I've spoken on this so many times throughout um, us being a church. And, um I, I've almost wanted to, as as important as Jesus made this theme in his life, I've wanted to make this theme important for us as a church, right? Jesus, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. One of the historians, Michael Grant, says that every thought and saying of Jesus was directed and subordinated to one single thing, the realization of the kingdom of God upon earth. And this one phrase the kingdom of God sums up his whole ministry and his whole life's work. Right? Again, if you were to go and look at your Bible and see how often this word kingdom is used. So this is, I know you guys can all read this real clearly. <clears throat> this, this little thing right here on my pen is supposed to be pointing is Matthew. Right? This is all the kingdom references in Matthew. This is all the kingdom references in Mark. Luke. John, this is all, this whole area right here, from here to here, all gospel kingdom references. One of the things I want to be clear about, because I know sometimes this can be confusing about the kingdom of God, um, there's two ways that it's phrased in the New Testament, especially in the gospels. Um, Matthew is going to be the one that uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven. So you'll read this and it'll say kingdom of heaven. Matthew does this because in the Jewish mindset, um, the the word God was so holy, was so revered that you would not even say that word, right? The the commandment, um, one of the 10 commandments, do not use the Lord's name in vain. And so they had this, this whole discussion about how holy the name Yahweh was that they would barely even say it, right? So Matthew Speaking to a Jewish audience uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, right? Because in some senses, if he just went kingdom, God, 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 it would be offensive to them. It would be hard for them to understand the message, right? Mark, Luke, John use the phrase kingdom of God because they're speaking primarily to a Gentile audience, right? They're speaking primarily to people who wouldn't have that kind of same shared religious history that the Jews did and for them to say the kingdom of God would not be offensive. So oftentimes, I'll use um, this kind of, I'll, I can paraphrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. They're inexchangeable. Sometimes I'll even use that an acronym or that shortcut, K-O-G-H, kingdom of God slash heaven or something like that. It's the same thing. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, what's the difference between the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven? Why is he using it one time here, one time there? It's the same. It was the way that the gospels were written. And the way that the Gospels were written to their particular audience. Um, any questions on that as we kind of just jump into it? Brooks, any questions? No? Okay, he's good. Just want to make sure he's getting comprehended because this is important for him at a young age. Is it not up? I don't know. What it, is. it should be like medium? Yeah, I think it's up, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, um, when I was a kid, I, you know, here's the Lord's Prayer. We're, we're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And when I was a kid, here's, here's what's, what I was kind of starting with. You know, the way that I, I was taught the Lord's Prayer and the way that I read the Lord's Prayer as a kid was, was kind of different. I'd read the Lord's Prayer in, in the sense of, you know, the, the big emphasis, right? You can kind of see the big emphasis was here on, on debt or sin, right? The forgiveness of our sins, of our, of our debts. There was the evil one. There was the devil who we were always in battle with. You know, the, the father part was semi-important. We talk about a little bit about daily bread, maybe during communion time. And again, growing up in the church, my dad's a pastor. You guys all know this. I never really knew how, to, how this kingdom piece interacted with this whole prayer, right? I knew, again, the sin, the debts, Jesus on the cross. I knew the temptation, the evil one, the sin. I knew, you know, that, that God was our father and that you don't say the Lord's name in vain. You don't say, oh my God. Anybody, like my kids sometimes even say, oh my God. And I'm like, no, no, we don't <laughs> do not do that. We don't say, oh my God, that's not something we say. You know, there's like this reverence to the name of, of God's name. Um, but again, this kingdom piece was always something that kind of, the volume got turned down on it. I didn't quite understand it. And so, you know, as I was, studying and learning the kingdom, I had to go all the way back and learn the real history of the kingdom. Where does this theme develop in the Bible? Jesus just doesn't pop onto the scene and say, hey, it's kingdom of God time, right? This is a theme that gets developed throughout the whole Bible. It begins with Abraham, with his covenant blessing, when God says all the way back in Genesis 13, right? All the way back, just a few chapters into the Bible. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing, right? Your descendants will be greater than the stars in the sky, than the sand on the seashore. Like, I'm going to make you a great nation, right? I'm going to make you a great kingdom. Abraham, I'm going to make you this kingdom, not so that you can just say, hey, look how great we are, how wonderful we are, but so that you can go out and be a blessing into this world. We've always used that phrase. God saying, I will be the wind to your back, Abraham, so that in this world, you can be the wind to the back of others. They obviously kind of lose their way with, with Abraham. They end up in Egypt, right? They end up in Egypt for 400 years, the Israelites um, experience kingdom oppression. Um, they, they are oppressed by Pharaoh 400 years as slaves. Um, there's the liberation with Moses. There's the reset in the desert, right? God, in essence, takes them out into the desert and says, You need to like relearn how to be a human. You've been oppressed and subjugated and been a slave for so long. I'm going to reteach you how to be human. And so he reteaches them in the desert how to be human. Then there's the kingdom building as they move into the promised land, right? They conquer. Last week, we talked a little bit about the Decapolis. As they moved into the promised land, there were those seven nations that they end up Conquering the land, those seven nations get the place. They form the Decapolis. That's when Jesus goes and feeds them later on. You have the judges who are like these tribal rulers, kind of military warfare rulers, right? That kind of are ruling these 12 different tribes as they're taking possession of the land. And then you have the people crying out for a king, right? And God says, I don't, I don't, you don't need a king, right? But they're looking at their neighbors seeing how everybody else has a king. God says, let me be your king. But the Israelites say, no, 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 we want a king. We want a king. God gives him King Saul. That starts off kind of okay, but then it just deteriorates quickly. But then you have the kingdom peak, right? We all know King David, right? We all know that King David is the one who unites the 12 tribes, right? Who brings these 12 tribes together under one nation under Israel. Think about the 13 colonies, right? The 13 colonies kind of have all their, their own agenda, but then they're all brought together, Right under George Washington, in some senses, King David was a little bit like George Washington, bringing everyone. Would that be the right guy? Sure. <laughs> um, bringing everyone together, and then his son Solomon, right? One of his sons, Solomon. Remember, he has some other sons, um, but his his one son Solomon is then not only is the nation together, but then Solomon builds what? Does anybody remember what Solomon builds? The temp, huh? The what? Close, the tem, the temple, right? The temple, yeah. He builds the temple, right? He builds this house for God to reside in. This is the peak of the kingdom of the Israelites, right? Everything is wonderful here, so to speak. There's power, there's influence. But even in this, what we would call a kingdom peak, we talked about this, I think a few months ago, the Israelites to build the temple are using slave labor, Right? And so it's this kind of hearkening back and God is furious at them that they are using slave labor. Like, don't you remember when you were slaves in Egypt and now you're using slaves to build the temple, right? So even under Solomon, as, as they would see this as the height of their influence and power and, and, and wealth and prosperity and security, there's something rotten at the core, um, that rottenness, that cancer at the core spreads. The kingdom declines. The sons of David and beyond split the kingdom. There's the northern kingdom. There's the southern kingdom. There's the exile, right? There is, um, there is the, the northern kingdom exiled to Assyria. The southern kingdom <coughs> exiled to Babylon. They spend time. Again, it's, it's almost like Egypt part two, right? So they're in exile for, for, some of them, hundreds of years. Babylon, Assyria, and pagan land. Um, imagine imagine Great Britain kind of, again, kind of using that colonies analogy, Great Britain kind of moves back into the United States and kicks all the Americans out like into the northernmost regions of Canada or, or something along that, right? To where it's like, we've lost our homes. We've lost all that we think is valuable, and now we're living as some sort of nomads in, in kind of the Arctic circle up in Canada. That's That was what they were experiencing in some ways. So again, you see this kingdom theme, just this whole thread throughout the scriptures. And as they're in exile, right? This happens, the, the, the southern kingdom Judah is exiled in 586, right? So about 500 years before Christ walks the earth. This covenant keeps coming, or this question keeps coming up is, When is Yahweh going to fulfill his kingdom promise, right? Yahweh, you promised us all the way back in Abraham that we're going to be on top, that we're going to have this kingdom, that we're going to rise again like we did under David and Solomon, right? And so there's, again, they're in Babylon, they're in Assyria, there's all these different kind of historical groups that pop up. They're looking for the kingdom, they're looking for the kingdom, they're looking for the kingdom. So, We get to Jesus. We get to the birth of Jesus. We read about the birth of Jesus in the book of Matthew. One of the things that Matthew starts with at the very beginning is he starts with this little numbers game for us. And and it's kind of hidden in this. But Matthew says this in Matthew 1.17, the first gospel. So he goes through the genealogy, which was really exciting to read. And if you guys want to spend some time, we can read the genealogy of, right? That's a joke because nobody likes reading genealogies, right? But he goes through all these genealogies. And it says there were 14 generations remember we started at Abraham, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now what's interesting about this number 14 is when Matthew's using this number 14, um, in, in, in the Hebrew language, they did not have, they didn't have vowels. Right, So if they were to play Wheel of Fortune, it would just be all consonants. right? No vowels. You couldn't buy a vowel. I should, that was so bad. That was like... Okay, let just, just group here for a second. I got at least get one bad joke. What's that? It wasn't the worst one. That wasn't the worst one of the day? The worst one was that I was good looking. That was the worst one. Lord have mercy. I'm ready for vacation. <laughs> so they, they didn't have vowels. They didn't have numbers, right? So you wouldn't, in the Hebrew language, if you're going to study the Hebrew language, you're not going to find vowels, you're not going to find numbers. They would use letters to delineate numbers, right? So I don't know, for us, maybe if we we were to use the letter A to be one, B to be two, C, and so on and so forth, they had their own system of using letters and numbers, no vowels. So let me show you this, because Matthew, again, is, is subtly whispering something here into our ear when he says 14 right? The letter D is four. The letter V is six. The letter D is four. Now, I'm not good at math, but I am good enough to add up three numbers, which adds up to what? 14. 14. So it's almost as if like there's, there's like lines in between the text, right? The, the, the genealogy leading up to Jesus is whispering what? The new king, King David, Jesus, 14, David, king, king, king. Right? So, you you have to understand, when Jesus arrives on the scene start talk, starts talking about the kingdom, it's not just like, well, what am I going to do here? Uh, king, let's go for it. No, 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 no. The whole Bible has been arcing towards Jesus arriving on the scene, being this king. Right? Being this king. Um, just a couple, I would say, kind of components of the kingdom or elements of the kingdom. Um. Yeah, l- let me just show a couple things. So this is a history of the kingdom. I want to just kind of, sh- like, again, comprehending the king- kingdom, understanding it. One of the things that, and I meant to bring a hula hoop this morning. That was another of all the things we were struggling this morning. We had no kids last night. And so I think our mental, like all the faculties that you normally have to be sharp on, dull. just dull. I forgot the coffee pot. She forgot we had to do the thing after church. We forgot, like, all this sort of stuff. We're just... I was watching the Tour de France, which started yesterday. I'll have to get into Tour de France reference at some point. Um, she was working on her sermon. Um, so we were just like, whew. Um, a hula hoop. Let me go back to a hula hoop. One of the things that's kind of helped me always understand this kind of kingdom imagery, I'm seeing if I had something, um, is a hula hoop, right? Because because everyone has a kingdom. And when I think about a hula hoop, I think about just just like there's this sphere around you in which... What you want done is done, right? What you genuinely have say over, right? The range of your effective will. This is how, by the way, this is kind of some, some Dallas Willard language here. So Christy, um, who told you what you were going to have for breakfast this morning? Yourself, right? That is in within the kingdom of Christy, right? Deitra, who told you what you're going to wear this morning? You, right? That is within the kingdom of Ditra, Brian, who told you what car you're going to drive this morning? Mm. Right? These are some, some really trivial things that are within our, What we want done is done. Who told your child what they are going to have for breakfast this morning? Mm-hmm. Oh, they did? Did you let them choose? Yeah. Ditra. Did. You did? So you can see that, right, with a child's kingdom... That might not necessarily be, or you're probably the better one. Who told um, (coughs) Lucas what he's going to have for breakfast this morning? Liz. Liz, right? Here's what's for breakfast. Sometimes maybe you guys give Lucas that power to to determine, but for the most part, it's like, you're going to go to bed at this time? You're going to eat this food? You're going to wear this clothing? You're going to come with us where we go? Those are not things, so to speak, in the kingdom of Lucas, right? Lucas gets to choose what toys he plays with when it's toy time, or maybe what TV show he wants to play with. But those are not things that are within the kingdom. We all have a kingdom, right? We all have what we want done is done. What we actually have say over. Does that make sense? And again, for me, that kind of image, again, I was going to bring, my girls have hula hoops, but I was going to bring a hula hoop because it's it's like this sphere around us where we can do what we want to do in certain things. Now, again, sometimes that's trivial. Um, Sometimes that's serious right? Who gets to choose how you spend your money, right? Like that's that's a big part of your kingdom. Who gets to choose the vocation that you want to pursue, right? Who gets to choose the place where you're going to live, how you're going to parent your children? Um, so we all have kingdoms. We all have a range of our effective will where we want what's done is done. By the way, um, strife and conflict in, in life happens when what? When two kingdoms collide, right? When two kingdoms collide. Where when Phil says, tonight we're going to watch... Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Wheel of Fortune. And Elise says, we are not watching Wheel of Fortune, we are watching... Jeopardy. Jeopardy, right? <laughs> kingdoms colliding. Because Phil says, I want done to watch Wheel of Fortune. And Elise says, no, I want done. Or tonight we're going to leave the windows open. No, we're not going to leave the windows open. I'm cold tonight. Or tonight we're going to have... Do you see what I'm saying? Conflict happens when kingdoms collide. So we all have this little kingdom around us. We all have this range of our effective will where what we want done is done. Now we get to this part. God's kingdom, which is quite large. It's larger than our kingdoms, right? Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live it. God's hula hoop is not small. That just encompasses breakfast choices and jobs and the car that we drive. The earth is the Lord's. God's hula hoop surrounds like Saturn, surrounds the entire earth, surrounds the entire universe. For God is king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise, right? So, we then ask these same questions. A kingdom is the range of God's effective will. What God genuinely has say over. Where what God wants done is done. This is why when we go back to the Lord's Prayer and we pray the Lord's Prayer and we're asking for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth here as it is in heaven, we are saying, in essence, God, what you want done is done i will submit to that right i am not going to take my kingdom and try and impose that on your kingdom i am going to allow your kingdom to ha- genuinely have say over my life that your will would have say would have will over my life the 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 core the base of the christian posture is submission right it's to submit to god god your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We good on that? That's kind of the base kingdom. So we got some history. We're talking a little bit about kingdom. How much time we got? We got a couple more. I got two more things, I think. Elements of the kingdom. Oh, this is one of my favorite memories. And Christy, this is is for you too, although Isaac wasn't a part of this one quite yet. Uh, This is preschool. And this is Julia on her helper day. And on helper day, well, I think it was each day a week, kids got to bring a little show-and-tell. Julia, this helper day, got to bring her sister as show-and-tell, right? And we all remember the days of show-and-tell in kindergarten, preschool, whatever. Maybe that's a fuzzy memory for you, and now you remember show-and-tell through your children. Um, one of the elements of the kingdom, right, is that Jesus would use this great technique called show-and-tell, right? one of the great elements of the kingdom is that Jesus would use this technique called show and tell. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus would do something, right? And then commentate on it. Jesus would actually go out into the world and do something to demonstrate his kingdom and then he'd talk about it, right? Oftentimes in churches, we get this the wrong way. Where, and by the way, I'm guilty of this too. We spend a lot of time talking about it. The kingdom, the kingdom. We spend a lot of time talking about the kingdom and not enough time actually doing it, right? Um, Jesus would go out. He raised Lazarus from the death. Jairus' daughter. The widow at Nain. He would cast out demons. Um, demons uh, into the pigs. The synagogue, the man of the synagogue. He would, he would have this, this action, this demonstration. In nature of calming storms and walking on water feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000 in hunger, he would do all these things. And then often you would notice in the scripture, as he did this, and as people would be like, what in the world is Jesus doing? Then he'd get a chance to talk about it, right? He'd get a chance to talk about it. Jesus would, one of the elements of Jesus's kingdom, that's so fun as you read through the gospels, watch how he does things, watch how he, You know, again, he brings his little daughter up. He brings Jeanette up and says, here's my little daughter. Now let me talk to you about that, right? Because if Julia, Lord lover, if she just stood up there and, well, my daughter, you know, my sister's this and this and just talked about it without actually having little Jeanette up there, it would be a different conversation. But here is Jeanette. Now let's talk about her. This is what Jesus did, demonstrated and then talked about it. This is important, again, because sometimes in the church we miss this. This this verse in Peter, um, I think this is out of Passion Translation. Uh, Give reverent honor in your hearts to the anointed one, to, to Jesus, right? And treat him as the holy master of your lives. And if anyone asks about the hope living within you, always be ready to explain your faith with gentleness and respect. Now, the assumption that Peter is making here, right? Peter, again, Jesus' disciple, that Peter is making here is that people are curious to why you're living differently, right? That people have some sort of genuine curiosity to think like, um, that they're asking you questions about the hope that's living within you. Not that just you're, you know, hey, I gotta kind of force feed my religious perspectives on you. That you're living in such a way with peace and with joy and with clarity and with calmness and above all with love, that people are genuinely curious about that, and then they say, "Well, Brian, why is that? Chris, what is that different differentness about you? Molly, why did you respond in that way when that person called you out in such a in such a mean manner right?" And then you say, "Oh, because the, the you know whatever how you respond, but you you would point back to Jesus right again. That we are showing, that we are demonstrating with our lives the kingdom. And when it's time to talk about it, when it's, when it's time to tell about it, then we tell. We don't just, again, we, we, we've gotten to this place where everybody just wants to shout and talk and do all this talk. And people aren't necessarily demonstrating the kingdom in such a way that makes others curious, right? The beautiful words of St. Francis, that you had preach the gospel at all times, And when necessary, use words, right? Again, that your life would be a testimony to the good news, to the kingdom, that you would demonstrate that. And when necessary, you would use words, yeah? Show and tell. Next one. Jesus is, when he would talk about the kingdom, he'd often use these parables. He'd often go back to this parable. We did this kind of whole sermon on parables, why Jesus used parables, parables. One of the things I loved about the parables in Jesus, and if you can kind of go back and read those, he's always illuminating a third way, right? He's always talking about a third way. When Jesus would use words, he he uses his parables and he he would show a a third way. Um, So let me give you two examples to just kind of show how this works. We all know the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The guy's traveling along the road. He gets beat up. He gets robbed. He's left half for dead. The priest walks by, the Levite walks by, but then who's the one that helps him? It's the hated Samaritan. It's the enemy, right? And then Jesus says, well, who's my neighbor? So a lot of times the the question kind of was like, who's good, who's bad? Jews versus Samaritans, right? And then Jesus, in some senses, right, as, as they're kind of living on this dualistic argumentative plane, Jesus almost elevates or, or, or they have this black and white, you know, the Samaritans are the black, they're the bad, we're the light, we're the enlightened ones, right? As they're kind of living and trying to argue down here, Jesus almost takes this whole conversation. Sometimes I like to think that he brings color to it, right? And he, he elevates it to a third way. And maybe the question that Jesus is really kind of pointing them to when he's telling this parable is, and think how relevant this is for right now, the way that we need an enemy to make ourselves feel right, right? And the self-justification, the selfishness, the rationalization, and the excuses we deploy to simply live in our bubbles, right? And the things that we make, that make us feel right, that make us feel, right? Right? So they're arguing, Jew, Samaritan, this, that. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're, you're trying to just, you're trying to have this enemy just so you feel, right? It always would illuminate a third way. And it's so helpful for us to think about that as we kind of think about, um, again, the dialogues that's happening in the world. Another example would be this, the woman at the well, right? The woman at the well, Jesus shows up and they get into this conversation and she wants to know, hey, where is the real place to worship? Is it Jerusalem? Is it the temple in Jerusalem? Or is it in Samaria, right? Where is the real spot to worship? And Jesus says, you know where the real spot to worship is? Right here, right? Right here in your heart. That you would worship me in spirit and in truth. Brian, I was thinking about this, um, again, with the the woman at the well, with Jesus' words. As important as it is for me to sing songs alongside Brian here when he's playing that guitar, And he's got that sweet note. And we're all feeling like those kind of maybe warm fuzzies. And we're like, oh, I love this song. And he's playing it so well. And maybe Aaron's back here doing some. And we're like having that worshipful moment. As important as that moment is, it's almost more important for me on a Sunday afternoon or a Tuesday morning or a Thursday night when my kids are frustrating me. I often come back to that one one line, that one lyric. God, teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way, right? That great line that, that you sing over and over again, because as important it is to, to worship here, so to speak, in this geographic location at this specific time, the real worship that happens in my heart, day in and day out, right Day in and day out, when it's time when, my, when, when you know, your kids are frustrating you, when your boss is being demanding of you, when traffic's like all these sorts of things, when, when you know again, some of these things here when in death, in in um, kind of um, family member in strife and all these sorts of things, that we would sing our songs, that we would worship the Lord. Again, as important as it was here, the third way is that you would worship in your heart, right? That you would be a worshipful person in your heart. I will get back um, because we're running a little short on time. We will, we will discuss gun issues next time. <laughs> Just a little teaser for you. Huh? The, the gun issues is when we talk about gun issues in, in, the, in, the, in the United States, we have like this just kind of dualistic binary way. Either you're pro gun, Second Amendment, or you're like, hey, get rid of them all. What would Jesus say about that? Right? Jesus would illuminate a third way. And we can, t- oh, again, I don't want to. Next time. Kingdom's ordinary. Um, the kingdom's really ordinary. And it, you know, my wife mentioned that we're, we're watching this. We're watching this show, Chosen. You know, Jesus, Jesus. He's so plain. He's cruising around in a tunic. He's not a king in the way that we would think of a king, right? With with all this uh, fancy accoutrements and a castle and a temple and this. He just kind of. He's just walking around in a, in a normal tunic. He he. In some senses, is just a very ordinary Jewish rabbi. He uses very ordinary things in Matthew 13 and all these parables that he discusses. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like seeds and wheat and wheel, uh, wheat wields. Weeds and fields and treasures and nets and mustard seeds and bushes and yeast and kids. Um, James, James Richardson says it like this. He says, what an odd thing to compare the kingdom of God to seeds and to the plants and weeds that grow from them. Religious people in the time of Jesus would have been shocked by these stories. See, we think like, oh, Jesus is being cool. He's talking about plants and farming, and, or he's probably really organic. But this, this would have been shocking to them. They would expect a holy man like Jesus to give them grandiose religious images, like a majestic cedar tree, or a marble temple, or God riding on a chariot of fire. They would not expect to hear God's, compare, God's kingdom compared to seeds and weeds, right? The kingdom of God, very ordinary, very every day. It's yeast that's hidden. It's seeds. It's nets. It's fish. It's all the kind of ordinary elements of life that we encounter, not these great, grandiose images. I love this quote by Brandon Manning, too, because it reminds us of what we're doing here as a church, right? Brandon Manning says this. He says, the greater part of God's work in the world may go unnoticed, There are a number of people who have become famous or widely known for their ministries, but much of God's saving activity in our history could remain completely unknown. That's a mystery difficult to grasp in an age that attaches so much importance to publicity. We tend to think that the more people know and talk about something, the more important they are. But the kingdom of God is ordinary. The kingdom of God is every day kingdom of God isn't the grandiose and the widely talked about and the you know the, the most public thing right it's just ordinary in every day let me think if I got one more I got one more of me a long time ago um, I think one of my one of my favorite quotes about the kingdom that I've ever read was by a guy named NT Wright and NT Wright this was one of the one of the early sermons that I did, and I, I just kind of lifted a little bit of this material because I know that not many of you were, were here for that early sermon. And Here Wright says that there will be no barbed wire in the kingdom of God. And those whose whole being has become dependent upon barbed wire will have no place there either. I remember that, that Sunday, I actually somehow figured out to a way to buy a roll of barbed wire. I believe it might have been off Amazon because you can buy those things on Amazon. Um, and I had a whole roll of barbed wire as an example. And Where you're sitting, Christy, Bojangles was sitting, and y'all know Bojangles. He was using the barbed wire as his footstool after I was done using it. So he had his feet kicked up on the barbed wire after I was done using it. But this idea of barbed wire in the kingdom of God, of ways that we try and fence ourselves off from one another, right? The ways that we divide ourselves, right? The ways that we separate. And in that, in that sermon, you know, this, this has always stuck out to me about the kingdom, right? Because, you know, we think about the kingdom and you think about kingdoms, and kingdoms are about borders. They're about ways to secure your borders, to protect yourself, to keep your people in, to keep the outsiders out. N.T. Wright says that that's not the way that Jesus' kingdom works, right? Jesus' kingdom does not work on those sorts of borders and barbed wires and in and out. And there was a guy named Alan Hirsch who uses this brilliant analogy of what God's kingdom is like. And this is, I think, like a two-slide like two quote. So, so hold on for this one. But he says it like this. He says, he wants you to think of the difference between wells and fences, like a, well of, a water well and fences. He says, in some farming communities, the farmers might build fences around their properties to keep livestock in and the livestock of neighboring farms out. He calls this a bounded set, right? Things that are bounded in. But in rural communities, where farms and ranches cover an enormous geographic area, fencing the property is out of the question. And Alan Hirsch is an Australian guy. He says, in our home in Australia, ranches, or called stations, are so vast that fences are superfluous. Under these conditions... A farmer has to sink a bore and create a well, a precious water supply in the outback. Everybody picturing this in, in, their, in their mind's eye right now? It is assumed that livestock, though they will stray, will never roam too far from the well, lest they die. This is a centered set. As long as there is a clean supply of water, the lives will remain close by. Churches that see themselves as a centered set recognize that the gospel is so precious, that the kingdom is so precious, so refreshing, that like a well, lovers of Christ will not stray too far from it. Rather than seeing people as in or out, right? With the barbed wire analogy, we would see people by their degree of distance from the center. It's no sense that Jesus says, what? That he's the living water, right? That I give you living water. And John, he makes that claim. I am the living water here for you. And again, when we think about the kingdom of God, we think not about barbed wire, not about fences, not about who's in, who's out. Well, those people are out. 99% of the people that attend concert in the park are definitely out. You know, we're the insiders here and we have our little fence built around us, right? We understand that the gospel is so precious, right? That we want to offer that people that living water. Okay. I think that should do it for the kingdom of God, yeah? Let's do a couple questions on that. Um, We started off kind of with the Lord's Prayer, what normally uh, gets emphasized in your mind when you read the Lord's Prayer, or maybe you kind of have that history like me. Where else do you see kingdom language in the Bible? Um, Was there, you know, we kind of looked at the history of the kingdom. Maybe you're thinking of, as we were kind of working through the history, maybe some other kingdom language in the Bible. How does the kingdom relate to the gospel, or the good news about Jesus? Sometimes people think that those are two separate trains of thoughts. That there's a gospel over here and there's the kingdom over here. How do they relate? Um, from the elements of the kingdom, kind of these these different things. Which would you like to discuss more and why? That kind of show or, show and tell concept. The parables or the third way. Um, the ordinariness of the kingdom, or the you know the barbed wire free the lack of barbed wire, that, that centered set, maybe the well um, idea of the kingdom. So, yeah, take a few minutes, and if nothing else, you guys, I can go back to Robin's slide, and we can just talk about Robin's sermon, because I think Robin's sermon was better than mine this morning. But um, if you had questions or thoughts about, you know, what Robin had shared earlier, too, um, we can do that. So, a few minutes, and then we'll have some discussion.